the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What we as Christians can learn from the Alexei Navalny death and then why we need awkward community in the church. You're listening to The Common Thursday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on still an unseasonably warm Thursday afternoon. A little bit of rain, but hey, we'll take it for this much warmth, and we are excited to be together. One of the biggest world stories over the past week, if you've been following, has been the death of Alexei Navalny. Uh, He was... Uh, the main critic, the outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin. And Navalny was in a a prison, a a penal colony up in Siberia. One day he looked like he was fine, and the next day he was dead. And, uh, you know, the Russians are trying to say that it was natural causes, and nobody believes that. It appears to be, obviously, there. it was like a ticking clock. When was he going to be killed? And it appears to have happened. Christianity Today asked this question that I thought was a really interesting spot to start today. Russell Moore wrote at Christianity Today, what a murdered Russian Russian dissident can teach us about moral courage. Alexei Navalny was willing to stand alone, knowing he'd never be alone in the bigger story. So he gives the, the, the background, by the way, Alexei Navalny, an outspoken Christian. So uh, that should raise the stakes for some of us as we read the story. Uh, More writes, before the world forgets the corpse of Alexei Navalny in the sub-zero of an Arctic penal colony, we ought to look at him, especially those of us who follow Jesus, to see what moral courage actually is. Navalny Navalny was perhaps the most recognized anti-Putin dissident in the world, And now he is one of the many Putin enemies to end up, quote, suddenly dead. You might remember that Navalny survived a poisoning attack in 2020 on an airplane. Uh, He recuperated in Europe and he could have stayed away. But he chose to go back to Russia knowing exactly what he would face. He said at the time, the fact that is that I'm a Christian which usually sets me up as an example for constant ridicule in the Anti-Corruption Foundation because mostly our people are atheists, and I was once quite a militant atheist myself. But now I'm a believer, and that helps me a lot in my activities because everything becomes much, much easier. There are fewer dilemmas in my life because there's a book in which, in general, it is more or less clearly written what action to take in every situation. It's not always easy to follow, but I'm actually trying. Navalny specifically says he was motivated by Jesus's words in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He went on to say, I've always thought that this particular commandment is more or less an instruction to activity. And so while certainly not really enjoying the place where I am, I have no regrets about coming back or about what I'm doing. It's fine because I did the right thing. 
And Moore wants to ask, what can we learn? Now, you know, thankfully, the vast, vast, vast majority of us are not going to find ourselves in this situation. But what can we learn from his uh, his faith and how he faced what he knew what he was facing when he went back to Russia? So how can we know? Moore goes on to say, Navalny recognized that the allure of moral cowardice when standing in courage means standing alone. A conscience can always reassure itself that being quiet right now is the right thing. Navalny recognized the terror in the thought of being left outside a field of belonging, being branded as a traitor by fellow countrymen and a heretic by fellow churchmen. To resist the pull of that mob requires a different motive than a better than even chance of political success. Uh, this is an interesting. What did it mean for Navalny to be a Christian in Russia? To be a Christian against this regime? To stand up against what was going on? He said after Navalny's killing, the free press published letters between Navalny and the famed former Soviet dissident Natan Sharansky, who served time in the same penal colony, colony. Biblical passages are quoted throughout, including Navalny joking about where else to spend Holy Week than in the prison complex that the older man called his alma mater. And this was the root, Moore says, of Navalny's moral courage. His willingness to stand alone, his willingness to die. It's not that he just knew Bible verses, right? Even the pro-Putin Russian Orthodox Church no doubt knows more verses. It's the way he seemed to know Scripture. He seemed to recognize not just the bare instructions from Jesus about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, about being blessed in persecution, but also the story behind and around them he knew that this was what his life had in store. He took these words and the danger that came with it, uh, as Moore points out, literally. Those of moral courage of all face and no face have all kinds of motivations for their convictions. But more rights, whatever the motivation, one cannot maintain moral courage if one is unwilling to be sent away from whatever one calls my home, from whomever one calls my people. That's the joyful irony. One never stands alone when one is part of a bigger story, when one belongs to a bigger body. A person can... Um, can understand when Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for those who face persecution. I haven't thought of the Alexei Navalny case, the, the story much from spiritual terms, until you start to read about his faith. He was driven by his faith in Jesus, and that drove him to want to stand up for, uh, for justice, and it got him killed. And again, we have to wrestle with the fact that Navalny had the opportunity not to go back to Russia. He chose to go back to Russia to leave his family, to leave safety, and he knew what was coming. And what can we learn from that? Again, we don't want to take everything and go, okay, what's the teaching point? But I do think there's a learning uh, lesson here. And that is this. Do we have the moral courage to stand up for what is right, even 
when it takes you away from what is comfortable? Do we have the faith that says, I'm going to follow after Jesus and what he has told us to do, even if it means not just discomfort, but danger? I don't want to cheapen his sacrifice. Because again, I believe he knew what he was doing. But, you know, for us in our time, what does it look like in a culture that is moving away from faith in Jesus, from a recognition of who Jesus is, from biblical morality and all these other things? What does it look like for us to go against that flow and say, no, I'm going to continue to follow after Jesus, to run after him, even if it makes me an outsider? Like, I think we can look to these, we, you know, you can look all the way back to the early church, but we can look into recent history. We can look at Navalny this week and go, does our faith drive us towards justice? Does our faith drive us towards what is right? Does it chart, does it uh, drive us to seek righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness? See, sometimes we read the Bible and we, we know the verses, but we don't go, what does that actually mean to live out? Let me continue to flesh this out, to spin this forward and say, what would my life look like if I actually lived that out? Alexei Navalny did. It got him killed. And at the very least, before we move on to the next news story like we do in our day and age, especially as Christians, I think we should take time to think and ponder about the sacrifice he made and more importantly, what drove him to do it. A fascinating story. Okay, over the Gospel Coalition, they're talking about Christian community and um, the beauty of the awkward, it says. The beauty of the gospel awkward. This is written by Trevin Wax. He's been on our show before. But it got me thinking about what should the local church look like? Like at the very least, the local church should be a a representation of the community that it's a part of, right? Uh, in makeup, in kind of demographics. But there should be an awkwardness, not crazy. Churches can be way too awkward, but there there should be a awkwardness um, to the church. And here's what I mean by that. When you look at the early church, when you look at the disciples, let's take the disciples of Jesus for a second. Uh, When you take the disciples, um, what what stands out about them? So, for instance... Have you ever noticed the the people that Jesus chose and what they've done what they did? Okay, let's let's unpack this. You got fishermen. We all know about the fishermen. You've got Peter, James, and John. They're fishermen. Um fishermen are the, the kind of the lowest point of the totem pole, cultural totem pole in that day. They are for reasons of uncleanness, they're often not allowed in the temple. They're poor, they tend to be uneducated, 
So file that one in the back of your mind. Why would Jesus have chose fishermen? Okay, because again, I want to work from the premise here that Jesus doesn't do anything haphazardly. He didn't look around one day and be like, wait a minute, fishermen? Oh, why do I have fishermen? No, I think this is all on purpose. Okay, so he's got fishermen. Then Jesus makes a point to stop and call Matthew. Who's Matthew? Matthew is a tax collector. Tax collectors are hated individuals because they basically stole from their own people to line their own pockets at the blessing and under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. So in first century Jerusalem, say, who who were the most hated people? It It was the Romans. These were their captors. These were their persecutors. These were the people who uh, had taken them over. But tax collectors saw an opportunity and began not hating the Romans, but working for them, collecting taxes from their own people. And the Romans let them keep some of the money. So they were stealing literally from their own people. And who does, does history tell us were one of the targets By the tax collectors, that would be fishermen. So you got Peter, you got Andrew, you got James and John, and, you know, they're walking around with Jesus, and all of a sudden he calls Matthew, the tax collector. What are they thinking? Oh, but there's another. Jesus, along the way, calls a guy by the name of Simon to follow him. Simon has a title in our scriptures. He's called Simon the Zealot. So what's a zealot? A zealot was somebody whose life mission it was, was by violence and overthrow to take on the Romans. Many um, people, many scholars have said that zealot can also be translated terrorist, that you could literally translate him Simon the terrorist. And who did they go after? They went after Romans, and they went after people who worked for the Romans, like a tax collector. So you've got Peter, James, John, Andrew. You've got the fishermen. You've got Matthew, the tax collector, who takes advantage and steals from the fishermen, and the fishermen would have hated him. Then you have Simon the terrorist, Simon the zealot, who hates to the point of of overthrow, to the point of violence, people who work for the Romans like Matthew, the tax collector. Add on top of that, you got, you got Mary, uh, you got uh, Martha, you've got prostitutes, you got whatever. But just take that, that closest crew. And I ask you this, why? Why would Jesus have surrounded himself? He could have surrounded himself with anybody. Jesus could have said, I'm going to take the greatest religious scholars, or I'm going to take all fishermen. I'm going to take all tax collectors. I'm going to take, I'm going to make my life easy. But he didn't. And I feel like we need to ask, what was the point? 
why did Jesus see? We think of the the, the disciples often as like they kind of floated above the ground. Now these were very real men with very real feelings and very real um, shortcomings. What must those conversations around the fire have been like between the fisherman and the tax collector and the zealot? But yet these are the guys who end up being the foundation for the church to be built upon after Jesus ascends. What do we what do we take from that? I think this is a pair. I think Jesus created a living, breathing, walking parable for what the church is supposed to be. People of different backgrounds who shouldn't be in community with each other, who shouldn't even get along, but united under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that you that that what unites us, the lordship of Jesus, runs much deeper than anything that separates us. Neither male nor female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, they were still male and female. They were still, but it wasn't no longer about those things separating them, but being under Jesus Christ, being his disciple now trumped all of that. Friends, the church is meant to be a beautifully awkward place with a mix of races, a mix of Uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, a mix of uh, political persuasions, a mix of all sorts of things. United, awkwardly and beautifully under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I just leave us with, is that what the church is today? When Jesus prays in John 17 that his church would be united, that his church would be united. Is that what we see in the church today? We can look to the earliest disciples and we can go, man, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus do that? And the answer is that he did it to say, this is what awkward, beautiful, crazy, unity under the Lordship of Jesus Christ looks like. May that be true of the church today. Uh, An article I saw from Tim Keller recently, obviously it was written a while ago because Tim Keller passed away last year, but his works, his speaking works, his writing works still kind of outlast him, which is a wonderful thing because he has so much wisdom. He talks about greed talks about greed. Watch out. You might be greedy. And I love the story. He says he preached on the uh, series on the seven deadly sins. And his wife made a joke to him and said, are they, are you advertising that? And of course, yeah, we're advertising. She said, well, we'll know which month you're speaking on greed. And he said, it go, it actually played out that way that, um, that the month he talked about greed was the least attended of all of them. And he goes on to say, it's not because people were avoiding it, but he believes it's because people don't think they're greedy. But that greed is just uh, a, a, a nasty sin, right? It's the, it's the one that we kind of, um, that we kind of avoid. It's the one we say, oh, that's not as bad. Cause right. We live in a culture. Think about that old movie, wall street. Greed is good. 
Greed drives so much of what we do. And we give greed some other names that are much more positive, right? Drive. But it's that greed. It's that greed that says uh, that carrot is hanging out there. Just chase after it. Just chase after it. Just chase after it. And Keller says this. Greed is different than other sins. This is why Jesus says this is an I sin. E-Y-E, like the eye of your body, right? Jesus in one of the verses just talks about the eye. This darkens your eye spiritually. Jesus did not say to anybody, watch out, you might be committing adultery. If you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. You don't say, oh, you're not my wife. It doesn't happen. But Jesus has to say, watch out, you might be greedy. Greed hides itself. It blinds you in a way that adultery doesn't. He goes on to say, over the years as a pastor, I've had people come in to talk to me about sins, but I don't remember anybody coming to me to confess the sin of greed. Jesus is saying, you don't ask, you don't consider the possibility that you're greedy. You don't think you are. You say me, greedy. You think of rich people. You think of people that spend a ton. Most of Uh, Most of us even have a relative who's more extravagant with money than we are. That's all it takes. All you have to do is know somebody who's really greedy and you won't think that you're greedy, right? Like we do this comparison thing. Well, I'm not as money conscious as that person. I'm not as greedy as that person. And so because of comparison, we don't even consider that we might be materialistic. But Keller goes on to say, if you say this is not a problem of mine, that's a bad sign. A symptom of this sin is thinking, I'm sure it's not true of me. Jesus is saying, watch out. Darkens your eye. Watch out. He says, not only can materialism blind you, but it can blind kind of your Uh, perspective of life. This is the carrot one, right? Materialism. If I just had a nicer car, if I could just have nicer clothes, if I just had a bigger bank account, if I could just do a better vacation, and then what? Then I'd be happy. Then I'd be content. Then I'd be good. And we, we believe this lie that says... If I just, if I just, if I just, if I just. What do we believe about the sin of greed? And Keller asks, who are you accountable to? What Christians have you gotten together with and said, let's talk about how we're spending our money on each other on ourselves, how much we're giving away, how much we're keeping, what we're doing. He says, you have to talk about this with somebody. You have to have some standards. You can't trust yourself. That's the principle. You cannot trust yourself to decide this. This is, this is heady stuff. Keller's saying we each need people in our lives. Um, We each need people in our lives who are going to ask us the hard questions about greed. Because again, none of them, most of us do not think that we are greedy. We always think the other guy is greedy. 
But the question becomes, and it hangs out there in all of scripture, the question becomes, where will I find my contentment? What is it that will bring me contentment? This is greed and contentment. They go hand in hand. Is my contentment found in the abundance of possessions or, uh, you know, an amount of comfort that my, that my money affords me? Do I believe that that is the gateway to joy and happiness? Our culture says, yes, our culture is going to tell you, get more money. You will be happier. Get nicer things, a bigger house. Enjoy more comfort. You will be happier. And to many degrees, that's true. But when we talk about long-lasting joy that lasts, everlasting joy, the Bible makes it very clear that that is a fruit, that is a byproduct of a deep, uh, deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why in the book of Philippians, Paul can say, uh, in plenty or in want, I'm good. In plenty or in want. That is not the perspective that our culture takes. Our culture is in plenty or in more plenty. I am good. So two questions come out of this article for me. One is uh, the deep question. What is the answer to contentment for you? We know what the Bible says, but truly for you, what is the answer to contentment? What will make you go, I'm good. I have joy. See, the, if we don't think about this, we will buy into the, the current of our culture that says it's all about stuff. It's all about money. Greed is good. Go for it. But the Bible says differently. Which will we live by? And then think about taking, and this is hard, but think about taking Keller's advice here. Are there other people in your life who will say to you, hey, you're greedy? Are there other people in your life that you will say, hey, here's how I'm doing with generosity? We hide money in terms of like, we don't talk about these things when we talk to other Christians. We don't discuss these types of things. But we need to. So Keller asks, who holds you accountable in this? And if likely the answer is nobody, then I think the real answer becomes, who can hold you accountable in this? Uh, who will hold you accountable in this? Good word from Tim Keller. So grateful for his ministry, even uh, after he has passed. Uh, we like to, we, we primarily want to spend our time on this show uh, asking as Christians, trying to encourage us as Christ followers, maybe with the struggles of your life. How, what do we do with discouragement? What do we do with pain? What do we do when bad things happen? What do we do? How do we process those things? We talked earlier about greed and contentment. How do I not be a greedy person, but live following Jesus and being content and finding my joy in him? We want to deal with those things, but we also want to ask whether it be a political stuff coming up or whatever else it might be, is how do we process the things that's going on in culture? How do we unpack the things of culture and look at them through a Christian lens? 
And you may, this, I enjoy this, but you very much may not agree with kind of my take on things. That's wonderful. I think part of the goal of the show is to cause us to wrestle with these things because all too often in the church, we say everything's black and white. It's either right or wrong. You either do this or you're wrong. You either, <clears throat> and, and we need to, there certainly are things like that, right? Uh, we stand on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and those who deny it, that's outside the faith. You, we, that's not something that's up for debate. Whether or not Jesus rose from the dead within the church should not be open to debate. That is a foundation that we build our faith upon. That is a foundation upon which our churches uh, stand. But what do we do? How do we live within a culture that's increasingly not only not Christian, but is is putting the church in areas where we have to kind of go, what, what do I as a Christian not just believe, but what do I do? So uh, it's calmed down now, but the last couple of weeks, there's been that whole debate about Alistair Begg, right? Uh, that whole debate about um, Alistair Begg said to a grandma who wrote his show, should I go to my granddaughter, I believe's transgender wedding? And Alistair Begg basically said, do they know where you stand? Do they know you stand? Yes. Then I'd go and I'd bring a gift and people I never thought Alistair Begg would get into evangelical cancel culture, but that's what happened because it was like, no, you can't do that. There was no gray area. There was no spot for discussion for many people. And another one of those areas is with personal pronouns, with issues of sexuality, with, uh, but the pronoun one is kind of out there right now. Uh, this is, it's a sad story, a crazy story. The MS Society, the Multiple Sclerosis Society, has upheld their decision to oust a 90-year-old volunteer who's been volunteering with the MS Society for 60 years for, quote, not understanding preferred pronouns. Uh, recently, a volunteer named Fran Itkoff was asked to step away from her role because of statements that were viewed as not aligning with our policy of inclusion. Fran has been a valued member of our volunteer team for more than 60 years. But they removed her because she, quote, did not understand preferred pronouns and what they were asking of people. It's wild. I kept reading the article by going, did she like say, no, I'm not going to do it? And it really comes down to she just kind of didn't get what she was supposed to be saying, what they wanted, and they booted her. So there's still discussions going on with her. Many people have come to her support, even within the organization, trying to get her reinstated. She served there for 60 years. And then we read this at Fox News. Indiana parents warn nation after child is removed from home for improper pronoun usage can happen anywhere. Parents ask Supreme Court to hold Indiana responsible for removing transgender child from their home. A Catholic couple in Indiana uh, is asking the Supreme Court to hold the state accountable for keeping their child out of their home after they declined to use his chosen name and pronouns. Uh, they're appealing to the Supreme Court after they were investigated by Indiana officials for refusing to refer to their son using pronouns in a name inconsistent with his biological sex. 
the legal organization Beckett is pursuing the case on behalf of this family, arguing state courts allowed Indiana to keep the child from living in his parents' home due to their disagreement with the child's gender identity because of their religious beliefs. Notably, upon completing the investigation, the state determined the allegations of abuse against the parents were unsubstantiated, but still argued that the disagreement over gender identity was distressing to their child. That it was distressing to their child. In 2019, this family's son told them that he identified as a girl, but in line with their Catholic religious beliefs, um, they did not believe that referring to him using pronouns and a name inconsistent with his biology. Uh, they believe that there were mental health issues, including an eating disorder. So they thought they sought therapeutic care for those things. In 2021, Indiana officials began investigating after a report that they were not referring to their child by his preferred gender identity. They removed the teen from their custody and placed him in a, quote, gender affirming home. Despite the unsubstantiated claims of abuse, they claim the Coxes made the child's eating disorder worse, even though it worsened after he was removed and put in a different home. So these are the things that are before us. So let's take the first story. That is awful that that old lady is being stopped from serving. But I think for those, you can understand her at 90. But for those of us who are younger, uh, I do think the gray area here in the culture is that we uh, we can disagree with what people are doing. We can disagree with gender ideology and all these stuff and still show respect if somebody asks you, please refer to me this way. Like Not everything needs to be a fight. Now, when it comes to your own children, this is scary. I do not think that the state should have the ability to come in and take your kids over this uh, discussion. And friends, this is in this is in Illinois too. There's a big thing kind of in my area going around uh, where there might be something coming to the ballot where um, about gender affirmation and parents uh, having to affirm what their little kids say they are. I just think that we as a culture cannot allow children and even teenagers to make lifelong decisions. We do this with everything. And so I think it is reprehensible that we allow children and we allow teens to get life-altering puberty blockers or uh, even surgeries. Because what we see is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes these tend to be phases. These tend to grow out, and now you've done irreversible harm. But I also am so hesitant to ever. Now, there's times kids should be taken out of homes where there's legitimate abuse, physical, emotional, sexual abuse. But over this discussion, this is scary to me, and I think this is a spot where the church needs to stand up and go, no, this is not okay. This is not okay. We have to stop this movement of taking kids from parents' homes. I know it's not a lot now, and I'm not an alarmist, but you do worry about some of the stuff you read and see of, will this become more of the norm? And I think this is something we need to speak to and we need to hold, uh, we, we can't go, well, you know, culture's culture. We, no, no, this is one where we need to go, no, this is not okay. And we need to, you know, 
really, this needs to be a place of protest. This needs to be a place of a voice, of a loud voice being spoken. So I thought those stories were both interesting, kind of the cultural headwinds and what <clears throat> what do we as Christians do. Uh, over Christianity Today, about a month ago, John Nielsen wrote, theology is not a waste. What happens when we believe theology is a waste and how should we approach it? Next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. As we close out this show, the week is starting to come to an end. It's getting closer and closer and closer, and we hope that it's been a good week for you as well. So want to uh, play a quick audio clip. I saw this. A couple people reposted it, but it's a guy by the name of Inky Johnson. Uh, he's kind of a motivational speaker, a believer, uh, former athlete. Uh, this is a really short 20-second clip, and the irony is I believe he misspeaks in it because he retweeted himself. And what he says, the quote he says in the retweet is a little different from the one uh, in the actual audio, but it gets us thinking about failure and success. Think about that for a second before we play this. What does failure look like? Do you fear failure? What do you fear at the end of your life? This is kind of a big picture end of your life looking back with regrets or without regrets. I want you to hear just quickly. It's like I said, a 20 second clip. And then I want to talk about it. I, I love the quote that says, um, I don't fear success. I fear succeeding at something that doesn't matter. Right. And to me, when it says that, it's like, it's not the things that you do. It's the things that you leave undone. that gives you heartache at the setting of the sun. So in the clip, he says, I don't fear success. But in his tweet, he says, I don't fear failure. I fear succeeding at something that doesn't matter. I don't fear failure, but instead I fear succeeding at something that doesn't matter. Because oftentimes we just think about fearing failure. It is, uh, it is failure. Gosh, I don't want to be a failure. I don't want to fail at what I try to do. I don't want to... But this is quite the biblical concept to say, no, instead what we should be fearing is succeeding, but succeeding at something that in fact doesn't ultimately matter. What would that look like? Well, earlier in today's show, yesterday's show, we talked about idol worship, right? It's it's when we decide that making the most money is the greatest uh, thing about our lives, like what we should devote our lives to. And so we give all of our lives, our time, we ignore relationships, we, we give singular focus or primary focus to making more and more and more money. And you are successful at it. All of a sudden you look and you've got the money you dreamed of. And you get to the end of your life and go, that ultimately didn't matter. And it's a wasted life. He's saying, I don't fear failure. I feel succeeding at that, which is wasted, a wasted life. Reminds us of the parable that Jesus told of the man who had so much stuff that he needed to build another barn. So he builds a bigger barn, puts his feet up and says, uh, now it's time for me to relax. Now it's time for me to put my feet up, eat, drink, and be merry. 
and enjoy my wealth. And he's called a fool because he had succeeded at something that wasn't the best, that didn't ultimately matter. See, this is what idol worship is. We chase after things thinking they will give us, um, thinking that they will give us ultimate joy, hope, peace, purpose. And we give our time and our energy and our passions and our thoughts to them. And then we get to the crossroads of life or we get to the end of our life and we go, well, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. And so let's flip this question a little bit. What would it look like to succeed at something that does matter? What would get you to the end of your life and make you go, hey, you know what? I, I, I chased after the right thing. I think as Christians, we would say primarily it's faith in Jesus. It's running the race with our eyes focused on him. And so we get to the end of our lives and we've run this race focused on him, all the ups and downs that come with it. And we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or to keep the imagery of the race going, we receive the crown of righteousness, Paul says. We succeeded. We ran the race. at something that matters. Or secondly, um, You know, I I think about getting to the end of your life and knowing that you invested in the relationships that matter, your spouse, your kids, your extended family, your church. Like, I really doubt that I'm going to get to the end of my life, hopefully many years from now and go, you know what I wish I had done? I wish I'd spent less time with my family. But if I get to the end of my life and my kids look at me and say, you were a good dad, my wife looks at me and says, Uh, I'm glad I married you. You were a good husband. My friends look at me and say, you were a good friend. I will say that I succeeded at something that matters. This doesn't mean don't try to make money. This doesn't mean don't work hard. This, But it's ultimately, what am I trying to primarily succeed at? What is the measure with which I will get to the end of my life and say, I did it. I did it. I made it. The Bible has so much to say um, about that which matters and about that which is wasted. We read a couple weeks ago from John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life. Trying to say, give your life to what matters most. Faith in Jesus, that which is eternal. Give your life to those things that will resonate for eternity. Relationships with your loved ones and your family and your friends and your church. Give your life to the things that matter. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Give your life to what matters. Get to the end of your life knowing you've succeeded at what matters. Work hard, work hard after the other things, but don't make ultimate those things which are were never meant to be primary. Let that resonate with you. I don't fear failure. I fear succeeding at something 
that doesn't matter. Let that ring in your head tonight. A good word there uh, from Inky Johnson. Well, we're glad that you are with us today. Have yourself a great rest of your Thursday evening. Join us again as we close out the week tomorrow from 4 until 6. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.